Well, it's a, it's a real privilege to be together today, and I would particularly like to welcome all those from our uh, extended family that has come and joined us here at the East. First of all, we have the people from the South Church. Everybody from the South Church, just give a wave. And it's great to have you with us, and Natasha to, to come with the leaders and many of the elders that are here from there. Then the, the Shear Church plant that we're busy with, um, Apostle Etzolo and Anne, and everybody from Shear, it's so welcome to have you with us. And, join us. And then also we have the Latina community that's also here this morning and have joined us. And so very welcome for you. And then also we have all of our, our, our different age groups that have all come together, those from the youth, those from uh, the children and the young adults. So welcome with us also this morning. And, uh, and then I know there's quite a number of visitors and particularly welcome to you and also to everyone that's joining us online in different parts of our city, our nation, and also from different parts of the world. Come on, let's give everybody just a really good round of applause. And then also to the Hatfield East people. You are also very welcome. <laughs> welcome at home, and uh, thank you for being so hospitable. When we come to today, there is so much that it evokes in our hearts. We've been busy in our churches and as a community together over these first months of this year by taking a journey through the book of John. And today we actually, and today and Sunday, we're coming to the culmination of that journey. In the book of John, he uses different symbolism to create a sense for us, not only of, of what's going on, but the texture of it. And one of the things that he uses is he uses quite a monochrome palette when he talks about the death of Jesus, a lot of light and darkness. And so you'll see even in our design and even our clothing today, we decided as to portray some of that and to bring across some of the somber element, the, 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 the white and black, the, the light and darkness of this that we're celebrating today, where on Sunday we'll have a far more celebratory tone. I want to spend a little bit of time in John 18 this morning. John 18 is the build-up and the process that took place from midnight roundabout on that Thursday evening, late Thursday evening, after Jesus has had his, uh, sorry, Friday evening, after Jesus has had the Sabbath meal, the, the Pesach meal with his followers, and we then come into this, the events that unfold. So if we go to John 18, we read the story, which as you read it, and as we read it together, and I'd encourage you even to read this passage, it's almost like a slow descent that you are seeing into this tragic moment and what Jesus is experiencing. It begins for us in John 18, verse 2. And there are key characters that are picked up at different parts of this event and this slow descend of Jesus towards the cross. And these characters are all people that play a part in what is this tragic event that is taking place in the life of Jesus. In John 18 verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas, a person that had access to Jesus, that was trusted 
by Jesus, or with, at least within the group of friends that was trusted by Jesus, used his access to come and betray Jesus. And we all know the story, how he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed him with a kiss. He came up close and personal. How tragic is that, that a friend can betray someone. A friend can come for 30 pieces of silver which sell his friend. Jesus was betrayed. In John 18 verse 17, we read that Jesus was not only betrayed, but he was denied. Again, by one that was close to him. And here we read of Peter. In John 18 verse 17, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? A servant girl asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Betrayed, denied. What a tragic story. Then we read in John 18 verse 19 that he is now being put to be interrogated and to be intimidated by the religious leaders of the Jews. In John 18 verse 19 and verse 22 we read, Meanwhile the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This was Annas. When Jesus said this, Jesus answered him as he was questioning him. And the guard didn't like the answer of Jesus. So when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Betrayed, denied, now being abused. Jesus is descending into this tragic event. Then he's accused. In John 18 verse 30, if he were not a criminal, they replied. We would not have handed him over to you. Now he is being accused of being a common criminal. He's being criminalized. He's being said that he is a person that has no good for society, that needs to be removed from society, that needs to be incarcerated or treated in a way that will diminish his possibility of being a threat. He is seen as a criminal. And this is by Caiaphas, the high priest. In John 18, verse 38, we see as, as the descent continues of this tragic event, that now more and more, the, the authority that's involved is getting higher. And now Jesus is taken to the representative of the Roman government, Pilate. And in John 18, verse 38 to 40, we read, Pilate responding to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, what is truth? When Jesus was challenging him about truth. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So what we see happening here is the highest court, the authority that can decide the fate of Jesus after having questioned Jesus finds no fault in him. Finds that he is not guilty of the charges that is being brought before him. Says this man is not guilty. 
But instead of standing up for justice, Pilate then plays the political game. He does not want to upset the Jews. He does not want a riot on his hands because that'll get to Rome and that'll get him in trouble. So he acquiesces to the desires of the crowd. And in, and in some cowardly way to try and absolve him from responsibility, he, he says to them, well, you choose. Do you want Jesus to be set free per the custom, or can I offer you, and I think he went and thought about the worst person that he could think of, that the person that they would never choose, Barabbas, a terrorist, a, a, a troublemaker, a person that caused the death of some Jews even. And they say, I, they, he says to them, I give you Jesus, the man that is innocent, not guilty of the charges that have been brought before me, or Barabbas, this man that is purely and obviously guilty, has been found guilty, but the crowd chooses Barabbas. So Jesus is unjustly sentenced. He becomes a political football that is being kicked around and used by people for their own gain and desires. When he is now found guilty in that fashion, then Pilate took Jesus in John 19, verse 1, and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him and again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Now, this man that had been betrayed, denied, that had been accused, that had been questioned and intimidated, that had been falsely judged, is now being beaten and ridiculed. This morning, as I was doing the, the walk, Pastor Gideon was leading, and he just commented on that. We must remember that this was in the early morning hours that this took place. By then, you know, as Jesus had been going a whole day already without sleep, having experienced this level of aggression and of abuse, and he finds himself now being ridiculed by these Roman gods, mocking him, slapping him, taking cheap shots at him, hitting him in the face. The tragedy continues to unfold. Finally, he gets rejected by his own people. In John 19 verse 15, Pilate tries one last attempt and he brings Jesus before the crowd and he says, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. What a turnaround. What an insult. What a statement for the Jews to make. Remember, the whole reason they're crucifying Jesus is because he did not live up to their expectations to be the one that would come and overthrow the Roman Empire that was seen by them as an unholy, unjust, evil regime that was acting against the will of God. But now they say, rather than have Jesus, we will take Caesar. We will give in and we will be ruled by Caesar. We just don't want this Jesus. How tragic. And then he is crucified. In John 19, verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, 
which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. So they take him, and with two other criminals, they take him outside the city after he has been beaten and abused and mocked, just disrespected, and they go and they lead him out of the city to the place where the the worst of the worst of society was finally dealt with. And they go to go and crucify him. They put him on the cross. And it is there where he ultimately will die. What a tragic story. What a tragic unfolding. But we have seen throughout this journey through the book of John that there's always more to the story than what you think. Because of John's writing, his way of using signs and symbols and alluding in language that the reader of the day would understand, we have now begun to realize that, hold on, there's a little bit more to the story than what we think. There's, a, there's something happening that you would not see at first glance. As John is writing this, or the, the, the book of John is being compiled later down, a couple of years after this, a couple of decades after this, they're telling the story of something that is happening. When you look at it at first glance, you, you think you'd understand what's going on, but you have to look deeper, you have to look further. There's a few things that John includes in this record of John 18 and 19, of this descend into some, such a tragic and such a tragic experience that we have to pick up that may be easy to miss and easy to not see what is really going on. We see, for instance, and I just want to take, pick up on one of them. In John 19, verse 19, we read this little comment that John makes about something that is happening while Jesus is on the cross. So he says this, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This was the charge against him that he proclaimed himself to be the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. In other words, it was written in all three of the main languages of the day so that everybody in that area could read and understand what was going on. This already itself is an important thing for us to pick up because Jesus came to die for the world, not just for the Jew, but for the world. And therefore the world's language is used, of the day is used on his cross and on the sign on his cross. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. So they said, please change the sign. He is not the king of the Jews, but he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's, he's, his crime is not that he is the king. His crime is that he thinks he's the king, that he's delusional, that he claims to be the king. That's our disagreement with him. That's the blasphemy, that he claims to be God because only God is the king of the Jews. So please, change the sign. Make it different. He is not the king of the Jews. He claims to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate by now is fed up with the Jews and the Jewish leaders. So he responds in a typical authoritarian sort of way, no, you know, that a, 
a proconsul or a governor with all the authority and power like he has would respond. And he says the following, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I'm not going to change it now. I've written it. And I have the authority to write whatever I will. And whatever I write is what is the truth. Remember earlier he said to Jesus, what is the truth? It's always interesting how people that are going to do something unjust begin to ask, is there really something like truth? Does it really matter? Now he says, I am the truth. I am the one that will tell you what is true. And I have written what I have written. So this claim that Jesus claims to be the king is written above him, the king of the Jews, and he is crucified. What a tragic situation. Somebody aspiring to such a lofty claim treated so lowly. The disparity couldn't be greater. And that was the point that they were trying to prove that this person cannot be the king. He cannot be God. Because God would never allow us to do this to him. God would never let this happen. How can he be God? He can claim, but he obviously isn't because look at what we were able to do to him. But as we dig a little deeper, we find some more clues that something else is going on here. In verse 23 of John 19, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This evidently was quite common, that it would be part of the Roman soldier's payment for for doing the duty at a crucifixion is that they could take the, the possessions of the, of the criminal and divide it amongst themselves. And so they took Jesus' clothes and, and he probably had four pieces of clothing at least and they took, each took a piece of clothing. But when they came to the undergarment, they realized that this undergarment, you know, it, it's got to be no use if you tear it. This undergarment evidently was quite common. This was the type of undergarment that men of the time would wear. And so they took Jesus' undergarment and they said, we're going to cast lots over it. A little benign detail. Why would John include this in the story? There's probably so much happening, so much that he can describe for us about the events happening at the cross. So many perspectives that he could give us. So many viewpoints, so many details. But he gives us this little detail. Why does John include this little detail? And the answer to that question is a very important answer. Because the reason John is including this is because this was prophesied will happen. It was told to us that this is about to take place. That Jesus' garment would be divided. In Psalm 22 verse 18, you can go read that it was said. Hang on. So if this little event, this little detail was told thousand years before, that this would happen in this event. Is it possible that there's more to what we think that is going on? Is it possible that, that hang on, we must stop and look, look a little deeper at what's going on here? Is this more than just a tragic event of a man descending into this horrible death? Perhaps there's more to it. If it was prophesied, and if we begin to ask that question, we can stop. And I want to remind you of what John 1 verse 1 said, verse 1, 2, and 3. 
Remember, we started our journey in the book of John, for, for those of you that have been with us, we started with these words, where John writes this, the same John that now records for us this event at the cross. We remember what he started the story with. He said these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And John's whole book, he tells us in John 20 verse 31, is written to show us that this Jesus, this man that is now dying on a cross, that has been crucified, this man has been there from the beginning. This man is the pre-existent God. That because of this man who's now hanging on a cross, abused, fighting for his life, this man, everything exists because of him. And he uses a particular term. He uses the term logos, the word. We'd had meaning in that time. But he was basically saying the truth, the word, the, the, the substance of everything, the truth of everything that exists is Jesus. And this Jesus is now dying on a cross. So please remember that while you're looking at a man hanging on a cross, beaten, broken, you are not just looking at another man dying on a cross. You are looking at the one who made that cross, hanging on that cross. You are looking at the one who made the soldiers that beat him and drove the nails into his hand, hanging on that. That changes the whole story, doesn't it? That changes everything. That makes it all a little bit different, a bit more interesting. What is going on here? What is happening that the one who made everything is now on a cross? Why would that happen? Not only is it important to ask why, but it's also as we continue to follow John's story, and you'll remember I touched on this as we followed through this journey through John chapter, the whole book of John, that every so often Jesus used a term. He first used this term we read in John chapter 2. When he was at the wedding in Canaan and the wine had run out and his mother came and she brought the servants and she said to them, he'll help you. He'll, he'll sort out this problem. What was Jesus' response to his mother when she said, come on, you help them? Knowing obviously that he has the power, he can do a miracle. What did he say to her? He said, my hour had not yet come. What, what was Jesus referring to? This hour. This hour where he would be lifted up onto a cross. This hour where he would finally be crucified. The hour of his death. That's what he was talking about. Now hang on. So not only are we talking about the person who made everything that's hanging on the cross, we're also talking about the person who knew that it was going to happen. The person that chose. The person, if he's the person that makes everything, perhaps he also made this moment. Perhaps he also made this possible. Jesus not only chose the cross, but he made the cross. It, was, it couldn't have happened if it was not by his doing. It couldn't have happened if he did not author this moment. You see, because Pilate may have said, I have written what I have written. 
But that was because Pilate was deceived, thinking that he has the authority. But he was saying that about the one who is actually the final writing, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. When Jesus says it is written, nobody can unwrite it. Pilate can say it is written, but there's a higher authority that can say to Pilate, you're wrong. Please erase what you've written. But when Jesus says it is written, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So this event written down for us in history, this writing on this plaque, this board above his head, here is the King of the Jews, was not written by Pilate or any Roman hand. It was written by Jesus himself. The way of his death, he was the author of that. My hour has not yet come, Jesus said in John 2. This was repeated in John 7, in verse 6. When he, was, when he privately went to the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles, we remember we spoke about that, where he said, my hour has not yet come to his disciples that said you must go in public. In John 7 verse 30, later on we read, when they tried to arrest him, he again, the scripture says, he slipped away from the crowd because his hour had not yet come. In John 8 verse 20, after the teaching of the, in the temple of Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen and therefore he slipped away again and they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. Can you see that Jesus was in control of the hour all the time? This hour did not happen to him. He was walking towards this hour. This hour was planned. This hour was set before the creation of the world already. This hour was set. That this hour would happen was predetermined by the one who is the pre-existing God. And he came to earth, took on the form of a man, and the clock started ticking. And the moment he turned that water into wine, the clock started going faster. And he was walking towards this hour. So we see a tragic event unfold. We see a man betrayed. We see a man denied. We see a man interrogated and trying to be, and them trying to intimidate him. We see a man accused. We see a sentence that is unjustly passed against this man. We see a man beaten and ridiculed. We see a man crucified. We see a man rejected, and we ultimately see a man killed on a cross. But that's not the tragedy. He is not the tragic figure. Jesus, to whom all of this is happening, he's not the tragic figure of this passage. Who is the tragic figure? We are. This tragic story is not the story of Jesus. It is the story of the one who does the denying, that does the betraying, that does the ridiculing, that does the accusation, that does the beating, that does the crucifying, that does the killing, me and you. We are the tragic characters of this story. Because Jesus chose this. This is not happening to him, this is happening because of him. And we just exacted all of our evil upon him. 
and he allowed it. Why did he allow it? Why would he allow such a thing? Why would God, the supreme power, the one who speaks and things come into existence, why would he allow his creation to do this to him? Because this is the only way he could save us. This is the only way that our sin that is so final and so absolute can be forgiven. He wrapped his arms around all of our sin. This tragic event that we see, and we must remember he was completely innocent. Jesus is the only purely 100% innocent person that has ever walked this earth, that deserved not one lick of this, or at least had no part to play by doing anything wrong that could have put him in this position where this would have happened to him. This purely happened because this is who we are. This is who we are. This is what sin has done to us. Sin has made us kiss those closest to us to betray them. Sin has made us deny truth, deny justice, deny honesty. Sin has made us filled with hatred. We reject based on race, based on gender, based on age, based on social class. We reject all the time. And no matter how hard we try, we keep doing it because it's innate to us now because we have chosen to turn away from God. God comes and says, I'll take all of that rebellion. I'll take all of your sin, all of your anger, all of your hatred. I'll allow you to pour it out on me. I'll allow you to kill me. I'll allow you to do your worst so that I can die. Then I can take all of that. And through my death, I will pay the price. Your judgment will be paid in full by me so that you can have another way out, so that you can be saved, so that you can be forgiven, that the end of your story is not that you are a betrayer, a liar, a hater, a murderer, but that you are a forgiven person. A forgiven person. Worship team, you guys, you can join me. Thank you. Now you may say, but hang on, I've never murdered anybody. But I think we know enough to know the potential is in all of us. And the scripture teaches us that if you are guilty of one sin, you are guilty of all of sin. Now you may say, that's unfair. That's unfair. How can I be put with the murderer? My sin is not that bad. Let me tell you what is unfair. What is unfair is that a man who had no sin, was beaten for my sin. That's unfair. But because through one man, Adam, sin came into the world, therefore through one man, sin can be removed in its effect and its power over us. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. 
Jesus is not a tragic story. He's a triumphant story. He's a story of triumph. And we'll talk more about that on Sunday. My story is a tragic story. But guess what? Because of Jesus, my story has become a story of triumph. I am a triumphant story. Not because of me, but because I fell, fell on my knees and I've said, Jesus, forgive me my sins. And his blood has washed me. That's why we had communion earlier. It is so possible that I can look at the story of your life or you can look at the story of your own life and think you know what's going on. I can look at the story of a person and I can see their, their failure. I can see their sin. I can see their rebellion. I can see how they missed the mark. I can see their, their just the horrible things about their lives. And, and it may be that I can, I can think I can write the story of a person's life by looking at these events. Or I may even look at some good things that they've done and I can think I know the story of their life. But hang on, there's something deeper going on. Your life story is not the story you think it is. There's something deeper going on. There's something happening under the surface. There's a Jesus that loves you. No matter what you've done, how hard you have tried to erase his claim of lordship over your life, he is busy with you. And he is busy with me. The story of my life is a story and the story of your life is a story of, that moves from tragedy to victory because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Right now, you may be feeling like it's just a tragic story. I want to tell you there's more than what you think is going on. Watch out for what God is busy doing. Look out for the little things that the author of life is writing about you. His word is final. He says, I have written. And it will be so. And he says, I have made you. I have created you. I've knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have prepared you in advance for good works. I know the plans I have for you. He says, I love you. That means you are worthy of being loved. Which story are you going to believe? If you want to believe the story of Jesus, you have to stop. You have to look a little deeper. And you will have to allow the Holy Spirit to come and reveal to you, to peel back the layers, to begin to show you the story that he's writing of your life. Because guess what? He's not going to start writing it today or tomorrow. He's been writing it from before you were born. He's been writing your story. Won't you stand with me this morning? Perhaps for those of us that have come to a recognition of who Jesus is, this is a, a good moment to just say thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you did this. This didn't happen to you. That you did this. You chose this. You authored this. You made this happen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you did this for me.
Before you even created me, you planned to save me. Thank you, Jesus. Don't you want to just say, thank you, Jesus? Just say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It was your initiative. I had nothing to do with this. This was all you. Thank you, Jesus. It may be possible that right now there are things happening in your life and it looks like tragedy. Can I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come and begin to let us see more. Let us see under the surface. Let us see the greater. Let us see what you have written, Lord, in Jesus' name. I pray that over every person here online with us, I pray over every person, a revelation of what you have written about them, Lord. The truth. To see that truth about what you have written about us and what you want and what you desire for us, we have to begin by recognizing that I am the tragic story. I'm the betrayer. I'm the accuser. But thank you, Jesus, that that is just a part of my story. That's not my story. Because once I recognize that and I say, Lord, forgive me, I become the forgiven. I become the redeemed. I become the transformed. I become the one that is changed. I become the one that loves, that sacrifices, that gives, that lives life in abundance. Thank you, Jesus. Won't you just say, thank you, Jesus, for the abundance. Thank you for your abundant life. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your mercy. That you don't give me what I deserve, but you give me what you have purposed for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And there may be people here with us today that you have never decided to submit yourself to the love of Jesus. To allow him to love you. To submit to Jesus is not to make yourself his servant. It's merely, it's to make yourself his child, his friend. But it's your choice. He will never force that upon you. You have to choose that. So if this morning you want to make use of this opportunity to say, I want to choose Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be loved by Him. I want Him to show me who I really am and who I can be. I want His forgiveness. I recognize I need His forgiveness. I'm going to invite you to come to the front. I'm going to pray a prayer and then I'm going to invite you to the front. And as you come, we're going to sing together and have a moment where all of us together can just respond to Jesus. But for you particularly that chooses today to say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I would like you to come to the front. Those that are watching us online that want to do that, in the comment section you can respond and they'll also lead you how to do this. But can we all pray this prayer together this morning? Won't you pray this out loud with me? Just pray this. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize my sinfulness. I recognize that I am in need of salvation. Forgive my sin and save me. I give you my life today and I ask you to love me and to teach me in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's, let's just...
you want to respond this morning, I know some people have started responding already. I would love you to just come and, you know, I responded to the Lord Jesus when I was about seven, eight, eight, nine years old, somewhere around there. One of our own children responded at this service a number of years ago and came and gave their lives to Jesus. This is a great opportunity to just come and see God do something new in your life. Come and change you. And this is not a religion. This is a relationship with a living person that comes and just reorganizes, reorders, and changes your life so that you can know Him and know the goodness that He has for you. So why don't you give a last round of applause to anybody that is wanting to respond today and give them opportunity before I dismiss the service. Just come to the front. Come to the front. Come to the front. Young and old, just come and allow the Lord to, to just do a new work in your life. And I know that some will respond as I release the service, and you're so welcome to continue to do that. Thank you for being with us today. Sunday's coming. We're going to have a great time together Sunday in our different churches, in our different places over the city. So please go to your, just your local part of the family, and we're going to have a great time together as we're going to celebrate the victory of Jesus. May the Lord bless you. Have a wonderful weekend, and um, just may His presence go with you. And uh, thank you to our team. Thank you for everybody that made today this morning possible. May the Lord bless you.